come one, come all. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a comic book this week. I watched a series, a show, a new show on Netflix. We are covering Sweet Tooth. I am really excited to kind of uncover this today because this is a property I had never heard of before, not not once. Uh, so mm-hmm. as far as I was concerned, this was like a wholly original thing. But nope, as we learn on this show, things come from somewhere. based on something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting about what we're covering today, the comic that I went all the way through was dubbed when it first came out as Mad Max meets Bambi, oh. which lent it a much darker air a la Watchmen or The Boys, which we've covered mm. both of those. Mm-hmm. The show is being lauded for its optimism and hope. Of course, it revolves a around a bit more Spielbergian, I would I would say, and it's you know, and it's and its outlook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we'll we'll cover all of that comics, indie comics, the dystopian genre, and how does the guy Jeff, who came up with the thing ten years ago, think about it? Interesting about the genre here because, and they make they go out of their way in the first episode to kind of set up the audience for what this means. This is a post-apocalyptic type of, of of thing, which we you know I think got very very popular through the mid two thousands. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, but this is a new. It, it is trying to say something about the point in time, which is interesting, and it is the tagline: uh, "The end of our world is the beginning of his." And so it's very much like trying to remind you that, that that there is a coming to a close of one world and an opening of another, but just a very interesting frame to put around a post-apocalyptic kind of world. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in, and I guess, where where this thing is drawing in that genre in particular, because it's, it's certainly trying to look into a, a, a different direction here. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's stuck in 2010. And Jeff Lemire acknowledges the lighter tone. He's the guy who wrote this. He worked with Jim Mickle, who was one of the co-showrunners who sort of approached him and said, hey, we want to do this. Let me just remind you on the literary side, The Road came out in 2006 along with right. World War Z. Right. And then The Hunger Games in 2008, Maze Runner in 2009, Divergent in 2011. Wow. And then Walking Dead blows up in 2018. Yeah, shortly uh, after. So yeah. that and that that mm-hmm. that along with the the zombie genre just overran uh yeah. things throughout the the tw- the uh, 2010s. It was the time of apocalyptic slash dystopian stuff. So that's perhaps part of the reason also would we want this? It's an interesting after. thing, post 9-11, I suppose, at least in our culture, mm-hmm. that, that we would be so so wrought to meditate on what, uh, you know, the end of our society could, could look like for a good decade. Yeah. <laughs> well, that led me, it's a good point, bringing up like where these trends come from in history. What are, are there other pandemically inclined virus sweeps through pieces of literature or media historically that have any connection to this. So I I looked into both apocalyptic and dystopian, the earliest surviving piece of literature that exists ever was, (laughs) was involving an an apocalypse. So you may have heard of this before story in the book. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's a group of stories, but it's the Epic of Gilgamesh, Uh, which maybe you've heard of that from the Babylonians 2000 BC. But one of the stories from there is about 
the angry gods that send a flood to punish humanity, and there's an ancient hero who's saved through developing a giant boat, which mm. then also becomes the biblical story. It's, it's all right. through mythology, this great flood right. that wipes everybody out. But it's interesting because you're talking about post 9-11. It's really only after World War I did the Epic of Gilgamesh kind of reach a modern general audience. Really? Versus the literary kind of scene, yeah. From what I could that's tell, very fascinating. So that's it. Didn't it? Didn't it? Didn't hit the public consciousness until another cataclysmic world thing. Yeah. Speaking of those, I, I looked into sort of plague business as it relates to the end of times. The real post-apocalyptic pandemic thriller was by none other than Mary Shelley, who did Frankenstein. No. Yeah. What was hers? So this is called The Last Man, and it came out in 1826. It's set in the future Earth of 2073 to 2100. The planet is being ravaged by a pandemic disease, some sort of virus. I also thought it was interesting because there's kind of, I don't know, climate things going on. There's storm surges that flood the coasts, and people have to move north to further climates because the plague is prominent in hot areas. Oh, wow. I wonder where she was drawing those ideas from because she's on to something. But I'm wondering what yeah. her inclination was at the time. That's that's amazing. Well, it's interesting because like we were talking about with Jane Austen and then her doing Frankenstein and stuff, it's, a, it's often a response within the romantic period mm-hmm. in which she lived. Mm-hmm. They're drawing on individuality, pushing away from the draconian mm-hmm. laws before and the Age of Enlightenment. So it's sort of seeing the flaws of human nature. Yeah. Are humans the center of the universe? That kind of thing. Right. And then again, talking about how like timeline stuff, it was critically destroyed for the time when she <laughs> wrote it. Nobody <laughs> cared about it at all. And it didn't get reprinted until the 1960s. Oh, wow. Which is also kind of interesting. Again, another tumultuous time. That's really interesting because you have to get through, you know, Frankenstein's craze uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> through early cinema. And you get all the way to the 60s before people are looking into her other work and deciding it's worth to publish again. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of it did have to do with the politics of England of the time. And the characters revolve around being in government and whatnot. So maybe mm-hmm. that culturally is not as applicable interesting so it sort of got it got lost in the shuffle there but yeah those that i thought was was interesting as yeah, far as incredible. the firsts <laughs> of early precursors of dystopian which is like a civilization in tatters and then apocalyptic which is more the end of everything so hot right now so hot well that that leads us to let's talk about the book the first thing about it that you have yeah. to know written and drawn by jeff lemire which you hardly really? ever see with comics That's he's doing incredibly both. rare yeah, that's never the case. <laughs> you can look at our, our episodes where we talk about Watchmen, where we talk about Stan Lee, where we talk yes, about yes. Justice League. But yeah, it's very, very rare. This was originally published by Vertigo, which was a DC Comics imprint. So it was like their kind of like FXX for Fox, where it was... Yes. More yeah. <laughs> adult content, such as nudity, drug use, profanity, graphic violence. Wow. Uh, wow. They changed the name to DC Black Label, but hmm. they- like, uh, Johnny Walker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's like, that's not what the show is at all. You wouldn't put it under the Netflix Black Label No, no, showing. this is straight up Spielberg, E.T. Mm-hmm. Like e. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's Apocalypse. Yeah. It's, it's the uh, Apocalypse meets E.T. Yeah, so so it was a 
monthly series. So came out once a month from 2009 to 2013 okay. in the height of all of this. 40 issues total. I read through them all. And then allegedly the, the first season of the Netflix show only goes through issue 12. So they still have two thirds. Plenty of material of way to get through. Yeah. To go. And they expand. Yeah. Where this comes from in this guy's mind, he was born and raised in a small farm town in Ontario and attended film school. And I thought this was wild. He pursued comics when third, fourth year of film school. He's like, this just doesn't vibe with my personality hmm. and my creative impulses. He's a mm -hmm. much more solitary person. And he has complete control, not only of the writing, but the visuals and the money. You know, it's like, he's like, I have mm -hmm. an idea. I just want to put it on something mm -hmm. and get, and it's done. And, and it's just him alone in his room drawing and writing it. <laughs> yeah, film is so collaborative and it changes because people bring so much. Everybody's talented in different areas. That's, that's why there are these roles. But it, it, these projects can transform and things come and go and... Uh, when you build a team, you're building your look of your show in so many ways. So it, it's mm -hmm. very interesting that to you know to see this the flip of that where it's like, no, I I know what this is, and I, leave me alone for a little while, and then you can look at it. <laughs> uh, well, because it's as close as you can get. To, yeah, to, to filmmaking. It's it's a wildly collaborative process, and and then you get this mm -hmm. bouncing around a Warner Brothers boardroom and I mean we'll, we'll hear about how it changed I mean, we'll be interested to hear about his yeah. thoughts and how it changed but yeah. as far as doing yeah. the comic well, just having it alone and he's got all control over it I mean it's pretty amazing it, from the get go I was like flabbergasted that he drew it <laughs> yeah yeah well what's cool he's talking specifically and there's tons of books that are written about comics and what the mediums do differently and whatnot but it's it's this interesting merging where you're finding comics has that cinematic visual language but then mm -hmm. the individuality of like a novelist as close mm -hmm. as you could get to it yeah and then he's also saying what makes it unique the freedom of it films always one ratio some people do more than one but it's a box you know whereas in the box of a page you can lay out panels so differently you can bleed over into other things yes yes so yes. that kind of goes into his style which like I said, I read all 40 of the issues. I can attest it's very cinematic. He mm. uses every advantage that comic books has as far as laying things out and pacing yeah. things out and drawing things in different ways. His style is very scratchy, very harsh lines, mm -hmm. but he did use a colorist for Sweet Tooth. Oh, so it is, it is in full color, but it's not digital. He draws it all by hand. Wow. On wow. paper. Um, oh, my God. And it's, like I said, just what? beautiful pacing. What? We almost, like, yeah. just skated over that. <laughs> I was like, well, like, okay, yeah, he does it all himself. And then, okay, he uses a colorist. Cool. But on a physical drawing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, man, it's like we're back in the 90s. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all on his own, you know, except for the color stuff. But I would, what I did find was interesting in terms of being on his own or whatever, there's a whole sequence, which I won't spoil anything for the comic, for the show, whatever they're going to do, but it's in watercolor by another artist, mm. maybe like issue okay. 30 in. It goes into this backstory, 30 plus pages of just a completely different art style going back many, yeah. many years. 
And yeah. it was because he at this point had been hired by DC to work on other stuff and he needed a break in those months to get it done. Mm. So he he's also not <laughs> averse to being like, I'm a curmudgeonly person who just wants to do it on my own. Right. Like I said, he has a colorist for this. And then when he needed something else, he's like, well, if I want to, this is completely deviating from the quote unquote, you know, show of it. But mm -hmm. I'm just going to get somebody else to do an entirely different tone and style and flow and everything. Jeez. But it fits That's in with awesome. the nature. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can attest that I did tear up at the end. It was like beautifully mm. complete. There was oh, yeah. a, a a quote that I saw that he said in relation to the adaptation that I thought was just yeah. wonderful, where he said, in the comic, the horror and sci-fi stuff is in your face and the heart sneaks up on you. And in the show, the heart and character stuff are up front and the horror is really sneaky. Oh, yes, yes. That's very interesting. I would say that's exactly that's exactly how it feels yeah. because I, I, my I, and this is rare, but my mom recommended this series to me. She got a few episodes in. She had a particular request. Uh -huh. She she was like, "If you're gonna watch it, like go go ahead of me and let me know what happens," mm. <laughs> because she's like, <laughs> "Yeah, she's uh, she's, she's like, like I don't want to." Uh huh. She she yeah. she doesn't do well with suspense and horror anyway. So I can tell based on her on what she is telling me now, based on what you're telling me, like. Oh, that yeah. makes a ton of sense because uh, I saw the early episodes and it's very Spielbergian and optimistic and colorful. Mm -hmm. And and then I'm like trying to picture like, well, how does it get to the point where my mom can't watch it? And now and, and that quote really, really sums yeah. it up. And that, that's a very interesting thing to try to depict throughout episodes, throughout an arc, throughout mm -hmm. eight episodes, you know. Well, and even as they get later, if they do another season, which they probably will and onward, it's like. That's just story is conflict and things can only go from bad to worse. And, and perhaps they will, as, as they see, oh, we have an audience for this, mm -hmm. move things to that way. But I thought that that was a very insightful thing from his standpoint of it's got both of those things. So the, I it, it worked on me the way it worked on everybody who read the comics, mm -hmm. where it's like you're in it for the comic, the bravado, the craziness, the violence. Yeah. But then by the end, you're like, oh, this is the classic grizzled person finding yeah. a kid they both work on each other one gets less naive one has a heart of gold <laughs> the right. the stuff that you just bring on the waterworks at the end here mm, um, mm. <laughs> i can attest that it does that but it does it <laughs> in a flip-flop way so i i just love that yeah let's get back to him farm boy in ontario <laughs> yeah he knows he wants to do comics after college but it does take him 10 years to get a publisher he starts with self-publishing but he's still working in restaurants around town. Right. And what really sets him off writing his own work is this thing called Essex County. And this mm. is first published while he was working at a Mexican restaurant. Three graphic novels. It ends up being a trilogy. It's massive. And it's basically about where mm. he grew up in the farm country of Ontario. One of the books got bought and is set to be a TV show still in development. Oh, interesting. It's also nothing, you know... It's usually stories set in cities and the city life and the hustle and bustle. And he's writing about farm country in Canada. Right. And again, with Sweet Tooth as well, this is the thematics that he likes to play with. 
It's like all of the images, like I'm looking at images right now, where it's like incredible mountain ranges and just lush yeah. like fields of grass and lakes mm-hmm. and <laughs> pretty like yeah. it's pretty luscious. Uh, where like it, it's the, it gets off the vibe where like the earth is taking you know <laughs> taking mm-hmm. everything back, and that's much more the show than the comic because the comic is much more stark in the harsh lines and the scratchiness mm-hmm. and whatever, and they definitely mm-hmm. added that to the. Show, but right. the the placement of it, they didn't change it to the city because that's you know whatever right. they want to say thematically. But that's what puts him on the scene is this Essex County, and I even found in 2011 Canada's CBC their Battle of the Books. Essex County was the number one People's Choice. Oh wow! With more votes than all the other books combined. Oh my gosh! So a landslide. <laughs> if you're in Canada. And you've read Essex County, please let us know. How is it? So from that, this put him on the map. He was able to get projects from, like I said, this DC imprint, Vertigo. Mm -hmm. He only had one year contract to start, 12 issues, because monthly comics are dependent on sales. And he he didn't know how long it would run. The way that he structured it is, okay, well, the first 12 can be their own thing. And if it doesn't go anymore... I'll know how to wrap it up if they give me the the thing to say, well, it's not, you know, and mm-hmm. it won't be as fully fleshed out. But then once he was able to get the full 40, it became, oh, I can add all this other stuff in the middle to flesh it out and I can make the ending longer wow. and I can do what I yeah. want, what I intended. But he always knew A to Z what it was going to be and that it would be final, the yeah. end. You and I talk about it off mic, but time. we love... All the time when somebody's like, and it's not nine seasons, maybe 10. It's no, this is, this is what it gets to finally get to the point. What's your point? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's just me. (laughs) Don't waste my time. (laughs) (laughs) The influencers for this, the dystopian stuff we already mentioned, but comic book wise, Jack Kirby always. Mm. In our comic Just foolishness. Just popping up all over the... <laughs> <laughs> he had a series that he did called Commandi in 1972. Initially, Jeff Lemire pitched the idea of doing a reinterpretation of it. It is a young boy in a post-apocalyptic thing. He was raised and humans are ruled by an intelligent species of evolved animals that kind of have man-like... Oh, proportions whoa, yeah. and physiques now whoa. after some crazy virus changed oh, everything. God. So very similar. Yeah. That was a definitely a big inspiration for him. And then another comic, Punisher, The End by Garth Ennis, mm. the character of Tommy Jeppard, he said very much based on Frank Castle from mm. The Punisher. Yeah. And then from a personal standpoint, he had just had his son named Gus before starting the series, who was a few months old back in the mm. mid-2000s. Right. So then the main character is named Gus after his son, and he was thinking a lot about <laughs> being a kid. Yeah. Finally, we get to what makes it different. Some minor stuff. Jeppard is a hockey player in the comic. He's not a football player. Interesting. And then Jeppard is white, not black, in the comic. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canadian hockey player. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. Well. That, no, that makes that makes um, sense. But good on them for yeah. being open on this role because I think uh, non. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Nonzo Anansi. Uh mm-hmm. He's really good as Jeopard. 
Uh, oh yeah, yeah. He's definitely makes you want to stick around. Uh, after you know, by the end of the first episode, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, very, very cool that that they've kept an open mind on that kind of thing because I think he's, I think that's paying off. Mm-hmm. I think he's really good in it. Some of the bigger stuff in the comic is the violence, the tonal sort of brutality, and Lemire's take on this. Jeff, who wrote and drew it, as he's working on the adaptation side of it, he's saying with the violence. In comics, there's a media difference where you can draw it with child characters around, and it's not as abrasive, but it's much more shocking and not appropriate with child actors and right. live action. It just doesn't work in the same. There's way. like a lot of laws around that too about what, like, you know, right. even, even like having like a child actor in, you know, a child character involved in a very like a like horrific death scene. Like they, like there's a mm-hmm. lot of stipulations around uh, that piece of uh, action being shot and when the child can be privy, what shots they can actually be in, how mm-hmm. they're comprised in that shot in the foreground and the background off to the side. It's it's a huge deal actually. Moral. <laughs> it's a moral thing. Yeah, I guess. But if you're drawing it the audience yeah it, you know it, it. you're just right there it, but to do it uh actually and bring real people in the real world together and put it in front of a camera and lens it uh it's <laughs> it's like that now you're thinking insurance and what's the propagation of this and well, wait okay did they see something that they shouldn't have seen and what are the repercussions mm-hmm. and now the parents oh, are involved, you know like, yeah. it can grow out of, out of hand really 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 quickly so like anytime you see uh, like a horror movie if there's a child actor uh, involved you'll notice that those actors are are not in the same uh, shots with the bloody bodies because they were never together on set. Yeah, I wonder like that when we did when we covered the conjuring like with yes, the possessed yes. kid and all exactly, you know, I'm exactly. like this I don't there's, there's two to yeah. uh, to an extent with like monsters and makeup that stuff is okay but when you get down to real gruesome gore or n- right, nudity right. is oh. really the hot topic oh, uh, so sure. like even if nudity is not the focus of the scene but it just becomes something that happens like if you're in a killer chase or something and clothes get ripped off or something that then that there you go the you now you have to watch about well okay can the child character be in this shot because mm-hmm. if that's going to happen, it, that's a legal thing. Um, it's real. It's it's really gotcha. interesting. <laughs> so that's that's kind of a big reason why they changed it. He worked with Jim Mickle and Beth Schwartz, who were co-showrunners, and they all agreed we need to find a new angle, a new visual language. And so the switch comes as what would this world look like through Gus's eyes? Right. Yeah. That's where they're saying, oh, this is the. It's a little bigger. It's a little brighter. Hence, New Zealand, and you're talking about the vast, epic, more vibrant landscapes. And then the lucky irony of it is they could continue shooting quicker because of the COVID New Zealand policies and how good they were about tamping it down. And then his son, Gus, he can actually now share it with him. Because like I said, he was just born as he's working on the first issues of the comic, but now he's of age to where he can watch it with oh, wow. with his son and be like, "Oh, I made that." that and wild. he said it sort of it sort of he it walks the line of it might be a little bit frightening to him, mm-hmm. but he's like, "When you can walk that line, you probably got it right." Right, right, for right, right. This age group cuz Goonies, ET, like they're actually not, you know, they're a little scary. Oh yeah. If you're 8 oh, yeah. years old, you can, can <laughs> yeah. definitely get there. I mean, and I I was a crazy kid. I was watching, you know, straight up R movies by eight years old, but you know, I I, I, I agree. I think that there's a, a, I think that's why Spielberg had such an incredible career, so he was able to just thread that needle of that child friendly adult uh, action. 
uh, mm-hmm. or, or horror, whatever it was in the moment. But he was able to thread it in a way that through the through the child lens. It's very interesting. I mean, that they are reframe this all through the point of view of Gus, which explains why yeah. the world feels and looks and why the show feels and looks the way it does. And I think it's paying off for them because it looks different. It's not sold like a. <laughs> right. It's not sold like a post-apocalyptic thing. He's not walking through the desert, you know, with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. We have said so much about dystopian, post-apocalyptic, but it just it looks so much different than just about anything in that genre. Uh, and to see that these elements of the what is so difficult about getting threading a needle that pushes up against scary, um, pushes up against yeah. uncomfortable. But it's exciting and it's beautiful, and you you know you you want to see what's what's going to happen next. Uh, there have this hopeful tinge to it. Um, mm-hmm. It's so hard to do. I mean, we've been trying to replicate <laughs> it over and over and over again, basically. Uh, <laughs> and it, it has uh, and to fit in with the culture of it and what yeah. what people want to see and what people are hankering for. This is after a cataclysm has happened. We're not out of the woods yet completely with coronavirus by any means, but yeah, yeah. Now, and I'm watching it now, and I'm going like, "Oh, I know. I don't. I didn't know anything about the material because we're doing the show. I'm, I'm like, I know that there is a comic book, and so the inciting yeah. world building stuff here." If it was reading on screen, it's like they're commenting about co- coronavirus, but I'm like, "This is just <laughs> no. coming out, and I know that this material existed a decade ago." What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of leads me, this is my last little story of this that I saw, which I think is the perfect capstone and changed some of my prejudices of adaptations and mm. sequels mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, which is very hard to get out of that of like, great, another thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So this is about Jeff and sort of what changed him. So he knew there's this adaptation in the works and he had said- Kind of like with Jojo Rabbit, where it's like, well, that was my thing. This is their thing. Mm-hmm. Great. Versus Boo Hiss. So he right. said, I got to tell the story exactly how I wanted to tell it already. I don't have the desire to do it again. <laughs> you know, the comic will always be there. Right. Let's see what elements resonate with somebody else. And like you're saying, Gus's perspective and a new take on it and a more hopeful whatever. All of that stuff. He's like, big motivated choice. Perfect. Good yeah, for me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. So he's he said, I'd never thought I'd go back to the story. Remember, it was a monthly comic he wrote and drew every month for three and a half years. Exhausting. Yeah. He's like, when I was done, I was done. Done, and, baby. like I said, I was really happy with the ending. He was really proud of the ending. He so, said- So, you know, what? what's left for you as a creative mm-hmm. there? You're like, well, it's time. It, yeah. It, it, incredible i did it and uh, so the, I, but i can't do it anymore because my god mm-hmm. you know you have to move on <laughs> um and so it's beautiful that he has the you know i was worried at your first descriptions of him is like oh no is he really protective over these things and he doesn't like mm-hmm. to work with others and it doesn't sound like that's really the case at all it just sounds like that he just man he had the vision and when somebody has it let him run with it and but yeah. for that same person to then have the wherewithal to understand, it's like, okay, well, they're coming at it from a very different angle because it's going to be a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's irreplaceable. That's one of the most important things. I try to harp on that through these stories all the time <laughs> is the, the self-awareness to understand how you fit into this and where it might yeah. be going and how valid what you do might be. So he gives it to them. And this is the real cherry on the top here. Like I said, he's done. He's done. This is their thing. Mm-hmm. Let him make it. But he was on set for the pilot in New Zealand Mm -hmm. before coronavirus hit. 
and he's seeing hundreds of people all in love with it, trying to bring it to life. Mm, Not that he was necessarily jaded of it, but remember, this is almost a decade ago. It really makes him appreciate the creation of it, what the thing is, and sort of invigorates him in the right way. And again, this is me holding back my prejudices of not reinvigorating it the wrong way, Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, this is going to make money. Let me. So he starts writing more Sweet Tooth stuff. What? It's called The Return, but the pandemic hits short, very shortly after. And so this is very uncertain times. And this is the thing that he's working on during the pandemic. And he even says he's like having old friends in the form of the characters was comforting and a great thing. Oh my gosh. And he said, hopefully that comes through in the story. So crazy. This is a six issue standalone miniseries that came out in November of 2020. He added on to the story and I got a copy of it and I read the whole thing and I won't say anything about it except that it is, and this is wild, set 300 years after the events of Sweet Tooth, (laughs) which I won't say what happens in Sweet Tooth. I can't say anything more to that. It's a whole different twist on the story. And I, it was like one of those things where it's like, oh, I love this thing. Teared up at the end, never thought you could add to it. He never thought you could add to it. But then this life situation happens, seeing the adaptation of his thing and man, I, I like this completes it in a whole new way. And in a way, like made me open to different storytelling where it's like, oh, here's this thing. Here's an added on thing. Usually I hate oh the added God. on things. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I know exactly. Usually what it's you like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can't wait to see if they do this with the show oh my God. because he did it because of the show, which is super fascinating. That is crazy. That added on now it's a it. wheel. It's a snake eating itself. It's inspiring itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, that's, that is bizarre. I hate to like not be able to say anything about it because I want to see what they do with the show. But if you're interested, read the comics, read the additional one that he did in 2020, because you think, oh, that's the end and it's a beautiful end. Right. It fills itself out. It fills out the world. Why would you make more? But then the end, the actual end is like, oh, that really fills it out even more in a way that you didn't even think. Yeah, I mean, be, you don't have to done. say anything. Which is, I know I'm speaking in abstract. Sure, like, and, and, and good. I was just so jazzed. I, we have talked about yeah. it before on this show, is that when, these, when a big property decides to do a follow-up, and often when they, there's two knee-jerks, you know, there's kind of the knee-jerk to follow up the very minute. <laughs> and then right. there is the second route that is always harder to stomach as an audience member. But I've come to highlight it as as signatory of a motivated plot is that when the mm-hmm. story jumps a significant amount of time, um, the the one that's coming to yeah. mind right now is Avatar. We talked about the Korra follow up series is it yeah, follows yeah. up a, a significant amount of time later. Uh, and say what you want and about different that characters, series. And, yeah. yeah. But yeah. it has a very particular reason as for why it has a motivated reason as for why instead of just wanting mm-hmm. to live with the characters in the moment and keep following them, it is now no, <laughs> yeah. it's taking you to a point in time to make a point. Uh, so you don't have to say yeah. anything to me when you say it's set <laughs> three hundred years in the future. I'm I'm going oh they have a reason that's what it says to me and that he was motivated to do it motivated even more because of the emotions he was feeling during the pandemic right he's he's written this comic book a decade ago about the society coming to a close because of a pandemic (laughs) (laughs) and so and then it goes away from his life and it goes off and becomes this thing now it's back in his life uh and then what in the world happens a real pandemic 
and guess <laughs> yeah. what is keeping him company? And his son is All nine. These, yeah, 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 yeah. His son is now the age of Gus uh, in the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and guess who is here to keep him company and re-inspiring this timeline of of of, uh, of material? Mm-hmm. Uh, these characters is pretty pretty bizarre. I I thought this was completely over and done, but that's a really beautiful outlook on like where this could go. I'm so excited to hear that the follow up is sounds very motivated in terms of of what it is oh, yeah. what it is there to do. <laughs> And it's done. You know what I mean? Like he yeah, did it. It's, and it's, it's a done. six it's, issue thing. It's not another forty issue right. thing. It was a little thing. That is it was, so cool. You know. Yeah, that is so cool. I, I yeah. had no, I had no inclination that there was any more of it, and certainly not that it would uh, go off like that. So yeah, fascinating to see what super cool uh, Netflix and Warner Brothers will do with this. Uh, it sounds like it has gotten such a warm response that it is a sure foot in for season two. I'm sure they're already, it's already well underway making that. So I uh, mm-hmm. guess we'll see what happens. That's really cool though yeah. about the follow-up. Oh my it God. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I highly recommend to anyone check out the comics because they are very different. The heart sneaks up on you. The horror is front and center. Wow. So if if that's more your flavor. Very cool. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you guys for listening along. Thank you guys. We could not do this without you. We love that you are here with us. Please let us know what you're watching. Let us know what you're interested in. At IlliteratePod on Instagram. Is there a show coming out that you're interested in? You never know when we will do an episode. And we will catch you next week. Hey.